Over the years, it's been interesting to observe the dynamics within the interdisciplinary breast cancer team model, and particularly how surgeons and radiation oncologists view medical oncologists. And one important issue has been the use of adjuvant chemotherapy, particularly in patients with lower risk node negative tumors. I met with Dr. Dan Hayes for his take on this controversial issue. And as in our previous interviews, this former high school history teacher began with a lesson on breast cancer. Neil, I actually think we use way too much chemotherapy and we don't use enough of it. And by that I mean our diagnostic skills and capabilities are pretty primitive right now. I mean, we know that probably 80 to 85 percent of node negative patients will never recur after surgery and radiation, no matter what we do and especially if they get endocrine therapy if they're ER positive. And yet many of those women get chemotherapy because we want to make sure that we continue to see the mortality reductions that we believe are due to adjuvant chemotherapy for those patients who do benefit. Likewise, I'm certain that there are a number of women who are node negative that we calculate have a very low chance of recurrence and therefore a very low chance of benefit, but who indeed will recur and could have benefited from chemotherapy, and we don't know who they are. And the reason I'm being long-winded about that is I think the days of using anatomic prognostic factors are starting to come to an end, and I believe the days of using biological factors, which has been going on for 40 years, you know, ever since Jensen and McGuire told us about the S receptor, and then Slayman and Crowd about the HER2, I believe we're going to get increasingly smarter about figuring out not only patients who have a high chance of recurring or not, but those patients who have a high chance of benefiting from the specific therapies or not. I think what we really need to do is get a lot smarter about identifying the patients who not only have a high chance of recurrence, but a high chance of benefiting, and not just from chemotherapy, but from the specific types of chemotherapies we use. And I'm optimistic we can do this. Can you kind of summarize where we are right now in terms of our ability to do it? I mean, one of the things that's obviously happened in our patterns of care studies have demonstrated a rapid uptake over the last two years of the Oncotype DX assay in terms of use, not only by clinical investigators, but docs in practice. And at this point, it's a pretty big part of medical oncology practice. How has that played into this? As you know, I like history. And it's interesting to me, if we look at the history of local therapy and surgery, the Holstedian concept led to widespread radical mastectomies and radiation for everybody. And then in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, randomized trials began to peel off surgery. And now, after several very hard-fought battles and victories, we are doing breast preservation in a lot of people. We're trying to peel off who should get sentinel node versus who should get actually node dissections, so on and so forth. So the surgery kind of went through this big wave of doing lots and lots and then dropping back. I believe medical oncologists are just 40 or 50 years behind that in that we started out not giving chemotherapy to very many people, finding more and more groups in whom there seemed to be benefit, giving it to more and more in the 80s and 90s. And now I think we are poised to do what the surgeons and radiation oncologists did 50 years ago and 30 years ago, and that is to be more selective and do less and still benefit as many people as we can. Having said that, in addition to ER PR and HER2, I think we have this enormous explosion in molecular biology now and the ability to look at not just expression of multiple genes, but also abnormalities in multiple genes at once, and not just genes that are present in the tumor, but also genes 
that we inherit that may ultimately affect how our cancers behave or how we behave when we're exposed to therapies. Now, that's the 50,000-foot range. If we take that down to the one-foot range, what do we do with Mrs. Smith in front of us? I believe Oncotype DX is a good assay. I believe that the company and the investigators in the company and the investigators with whom they've collaborated have done all the things I would ask them to do to develop a new assay. The first thing they did is instead of just by brute force running a bunch of assays on a bunch of samples and hoping they get some interesting results, they started out and said, what's the question? And the question for many of us is exactly this group of patients that they're very likely to cure. And those are node-negative, ER-positive patients. And if we assume they'll all get hormone therapy, the question, I think, is which of those patients still have a high risk of recurrence? And more importantly, which of those patients is chemotherapy likely to be a benefit in? Again, more history. Mark Lippman published in 1977 or 8 a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, which actually changed my life that said we might be able to identify people for whom chemotherapy works. This was in the metastatic setting based on ER alone. I think that was a naive but a ground-setting study suggesting that ER-negative patients have an enormous benefit from chemotherapy and ER-positive patients had very little. That idea has bounced around for the last now 30 years, but in general, I think the weight of the evidence suggests that at least in part, Mark was right, and that we just have now even better tools to sort this out. I guess one of the things is it is interesting that he brought this up so early, and I guess one of the questions is whether or not EOR was just sort of a marker for something like proliferation and that maybe that's the way it looked initially, but now that it's actually more like proliferation. We have a much better idea of what makes cells go and what makes them respond to chemotherapy or not. I agree with you. I think ER tells us whether anti-hormone therapy will work. So in the first place, looking at ER not only tells us about prognosis in the absence of any therapy, it tells us about an even better prognosis in the presence of a quite tolerable therapy. PGR gives us another indication of that. HER2 then appears to do two things. One is it tells us about a slightly worse prognosis in the absence of therapy. But in addition, there's an increasing story that HER2 may also tell us about benefit from either all chemotherapy or relatively specific types of chemotherapies. So again, the Oncotype DX folks put together a bunch of genes that, you know, just by logic, you'd put into the assay, ERPR, HER2, KI67, which is a measure of proliferation, which is basically what the pathologists tell us when they do tumor grade, and then some wildcard genes that they gleaned out of the published literature already from the Amsterdam group and some others. And then, to their credit, instead of just running a bunch of assays and hoping they got good results, I've said this twice now, they went to our colleagues in the NSCVP, Soon Paik and Norm Walmark, and they pulled out the samples that fit exactly the hypothesis you'd like to fit. They generated an algorithm in one set, a test set. They validated it in an almost identical second validation set. They got the same results twice. And while I believe some fine-tuning of this assay is perfectly appropriate, it is absolutely not perfect, I believe it's very likely to be accurate and reliable. In addition, the company spent a lot of time making sure that you get the same results twice with the same assay. These are analytical issues that most oncologists get bored thinking about, but in fact, they're very, very important. As you probably know, the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the College of American Pathology put together a joint committee about six months ago, the first time those two organizations have worked together. We have independently developed guidelines 
for her too, for example, but never spoken to each other other than some cross-fertilization of membership. But this was a formal collaborative committee between the two groups to specifically address her too. And I'll tell you, Neil, in the first meeting we had, it became clear to me that it's scandalous how her too was being done in this country, the very many different ways, lack of quality control and quality assurance, no real accrediting thing. And to their credit, CAPA stood up and said, you know, we're going to start doing accrediting. And and our committee didn't end up saying, here's how you have to do her too. What we ended up saying was, if you're going to do her too, here are the elements you need to have included in it. And you need to prove that your results are the same as a gold standard set of results. And that has to be continually monitored and upgraded. And I believe this process, which is just the first of its kind, is going to upgrade the diagnostic issues related to what we do in the clinic. You've heard me say this before, but I say it over and over again. A bad test is every bit as bad as a bad drug. And if we don't do our tests well, we will under or overtreat patients based on what we think is good information, but it's bad information. So this is every bit as important to me as how we mix up trastuzumab or mix up chemotherapy and making sure we give the right dose and all that kind of stuff. And prior to now, there's been very little, if any, regulation or even an indication of how to do this. In terms of the implication of accurate HER2 testing, obviously that's changed dramatically since May 2005 when the first trastuzumab results from the adjuvant trials came out. Now we're talking about identifying people who we have the potential to dramatically lower relapse rate. And you commented on the many different ways and the lack of quality control with HER2 up until recently. Which way did that point towards? Did that end up with people who really were HER2 positive being called HER2 negative, HER2 negative being called HER2 positive? Which way was it pushing? Yeah, it's hard to sort that out, Neil. From the large randomized trials of trastuzumab versus not in the adjuvant setting, Both the NSABP and the NCCTG had samples that were called positive in the field, which were then sent centrally and retested. And both of those sites reported about a 20% discordance rate between being positive in the field and then being called negative centrally. What we don't have, actually, are good data of being negative in the field and then being tested positively centrally other than a series of papers by a number of authors where they just grabbed a bunch of samples and, for example, compared IHC in their lab versus fish in their lab and that sort of thing. But I think that's a different story than looking at what was called in the field and what was called centrally. For practical purposes, how can a surgeon in practice be assured that the HER2 assay that's being done on his patient with breast cancer is optimal? Well, Probably the most important sentence in that entire paper is in the abstract, and it says that clinicians and patients and caregivers, something like that, should be certain that their assay is done in an accredited lab. I believe that with time now, as the CAP accreditation takes off and begins to be more and more commonly accepted and used, what we're going to see is that probably there will be fewer labs who want to do her too because it'll be a pain in the neck to do which I think is fine, and then we'll have fewer labs that do it, and when they do it, they will be accredited and they'll do it right. And I think an analogy is cardiac transplant. There are only a few centers in the world that do cardiac transplant, but they do it really well, and data have shown that the places that don't do it so often don't do it as well. Now, doing a HER2 test is not like doing a cardiac transplant, but nonetheless, I think what we're going to say is if you want to do it, that's fine. We're not police in that regard, but if you do it, you have to be able to do it as well as the CAP Central group does it. And if you can't, then you shouldn't be doing it. 
And we hope that both caregivers, patients, and even third-party payers start saying, we need to be sure you're an accredited lab or we're not going to pay for you doing it. Now, how long has this accreditation process been in place? Well, it's just beginning to be in place. So CAP is just starting the wheels moving. They're making TMAs and that sort of thing. Ray Tubbs is running that show. And so, again, I'm not in CAP, but hopefully that'll move along. So right now there is no accreditation program. So at this instant, what's the best way to determine whether your test is getting done well? Yeah, I have to say it's hard for me to tell you that. I think one is to be sure it's being done in a lab that does a lot of these. And while doing a lot of them doesn't absolutely ensure that they do it right, it implies that they have a lot of experience and know how to do it. And then I would say that the surgeons should speak to their pathologist and say, we really want to know that you've joined the CAP accreditation system. Again, that won't help you probably today, but it will pretty soon. And that's going to be a widely publicized and available system. So I think in relatively short order, that system will work. Now, could you kind of briefly review the difference between testing for HER2 by IHC and FISH and how that plays out within these new guidelines and accreditation? Yeah, so we were very careful about not stipulating one assay over the other. There was, as you can imagine, a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion, some debate, and there are those who believe that FISH is the only way to go, and there are those who believe IHC is the only way to go, and there are those who think it's somewhere in between. In general, what we've said, because it's pretty clear that there are false positives with FISH, and likewise, it's pretty clear there are both false positives and false negatives with IHC, and there are probably false negatives with FISH too. One of the issues that we started out saying is that rather than using one of these as a gold standard and comparing the other to it, what we'd preferably like to see is the gold standard is who benefits from trastuzumab and who doesn't. Now, with lopatinib coming on board, I think that'll be a similar question. And that rather than doing these two-by-two tables of FISH versus IHC, what we'd like to see is looking at subgroup analysis of these assays versus relative benefit of trastuzumab versus not from the randomized trials. The beauty, of course, is that we have tissues from the large randomized trials, and we can begin to ask these questions. And in fact, one of our recommendations was just that, was that the large cooperative groups who have these tissues and who have the data begin to look at them relative to IHC and FISH, or the algorithm that I think most people use that we recommended, which is that one does the first test, and if you get an equivocal result, one does a reflex with the other test. So the usual routine, I think, in most labs is you do IHC first. If it's considered 3-plus or very hotly staining, you probably don't need to do FISH. But if it's less than 3-plus, if it's equivocal, 2-plus or 1-plus, you might go ahead and do FISH. If it's absolutely zero, you probably don't need to do FISH. So I want to bend this conversation back towards this issue of the node-negative patient where we started out before and start to get a little bit more practical in terms of how these patients are being approached by medical oncologists in clinical practice. So I want to focus on the patient who has a node-negative ER-positive tumor. And I want you to, if you could, to draw out your thinking of how you approach these patients based on whether, in addition, they're either HER2-negative or HER2-positive. So the HER2-negative is easier for me. And if it's clearly HER2-negative, again, part of your question, I think, and I don't put words in your mouth, but when would I recommend we do Oncotype DX? And in my own practice, and now, so this is personal and not based on data, if I have a patient where my pathologist, and again, I have highly experienced breast cancer-specific dedicated pathologist, I practice in an ivory tower, but that's, you know, Dan Fisher and Selena Clear, some of the best breast pathologists in the world. If they say this is grade one and our 
IHC group says this is ER and PR positive and HER2 negative, I actually don't send that sample off for an Oncotype DX unless the patient really wants me to because the odds are there it's very likely that that's going to be a low recurrence score. And if it's intermediate, I think it leads to confusion because I still don't know what to do with intermediate patients. And, you know, it's hard to believe that would be a high recurrence score. The other factor I want to pick your brain a little bit about, and the reason I think to focus on this issue of ER positive node negative is in terms of adjuvant therapy, that is the most common subset that we're dealing with today, correct? That's, I would say, roughly a third of my practice, maybe. And so it's a lot of patience and it's a lot of time. And again, what we don't want to do is undertreat folks and lose the momentum of mortality reduction we've seen in the Absolutely. last 20 years. So let's go back and say, just because you picked up on this issue of grade one, you've got a reliable pathologist, ER positive, maybe strongly ER, PR positive. But where does tumor size fit in? Yeah, so I don't know, Neil. I'm increasingly less enthusiastic over tumor size. Tumor size to me doesn't mean a whole lot biologically. And this goes back to my saying, I think anatomic staging is going to become less and less important. I'm not sure what tumor size reflects in terms of the odds of the cancer being able to metastasize other than perhaps either the tumor was growing quite quickly and so therefore became big before you picked it up or the tumor's been there a long time. And I think the biology within the tumor is more important than size. So I'll have to throw out, you know, you've participated in our Meet the Professor sessions where docs bring real cases. We did one recently, and pick your brain on this one. Same basic situation you just described, ERPR positive, low-grade tumor, except it was an infiltrating lobular cancer that, to the surgeon's surprise, was 5 centimeters. She got an Oncotype DX, and the assay was 8 Yeah. That's low. Would you be okay with not giving chemo to that patient? I would be. The question is whether the patient is. But if you calculate that out, the odds of her benefiting are ostensibly quite low. What do we know about the oncotype in these larger tumors? Well, all we know, of course, is from what was in the NSABP. And then the question is what patients were in the NSABP. In fact, if anything, Neil, I believe, I can't document this, that patients who went on B20 and B14 – or the other way around, B14 and B20, tended to be patients who probably had something that suggested to their doctor that they had a worse prognosis. I mean, I was an active clinician. I was just starting my practice in those days. But most of us were skeptical that adjuvant systemic therapy would be a much benefit in node-negative patients. So the only ones we actually really encouraged to be on those studies were those that we, for some reason or another, perceived were not going to do all that well. So one would guess, and this is totally speculation, but one would guess that the patients on those studies probably have a slightly worse prognosis than the patients who didn't get on those studies. Right. So that goes back to your saying, well, you know, I think size is important, and therefore I would let size trump Oncotype DX. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't think I would, and I just saw such a patient. Actually, we went through all the discussion, and she said, let's do Oncotype DX. It came back as a low recurrence score, and yet in spite of all that, then she decided she would take chemotherapy. Part of this, I know you've had Peter Rabden on, and obviously he's a giant in regards to this kind of thinking, but we can now, with relative certainty or relative ability to be pretty accurate, estimate what the odds of benefit from chemotherapy are. And so we can run through the numbers and tell a lady that you would improve your chance of being disease-free by 2% or 5% or 10%. And the question within that scale is where you and your patient and society believe that the risk of chemotherapy is outweighed by the benefits. 
And I think all of us have to ask ourselves that question. Most of us believe that if you improve the odds of being disease-free by 10% or more over 10 years, that's clearly that the chemotherapy benefits will clearly outweigh the risk. I mean, overall in this country, it looks like chemotherapy results in some sort of life-threatening illness, life-threatening complication in about 1% of patients who get standard chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting for breast cancer whether that's infection, whether it's bleeding, whether it's a second malignancy like leukemia, whether it's heart failure, it looks like overall it's about 1%, not life-taking but life-threatening. So I think in my clinic, if a woman is otherwise healthy and I calculate out that she has a 5% or more benefit, I would recommend treatment. If it's 1% or 2%, I don't. And if it's 3 to 5%, I don't know what to do. Now, this last lady I told you about, I calculated hers out to be about 2%, and yet after a lot of hemming and hawing on her part, she elected to go ahead with chemotherapy. It's fair. I told her I support that. I told her that's not what I would probably do, but I've never been in that situation, and she decided to go forward with it. I don't think any of us knows what to do with that 3 to 5% group. I think most of us would discourage chemotherapy for the 1% to 2%, and most of us would encourage it for 5% or more, and a 3 to 5%, we don't know what to do, 3 to 4%. And that's where the TaylorRx study comes in. And I would very much encourage the people listening to this who are involved in this to encourage their patients to participate in that study. They all get hormone therapy. If they have an intermediate recurrence score, they all get hormone therapy and then they're randomly assigned to chemotherapy versus not. You can use whatever chemotherapy you believe is most appropriate for that patient. It's not dictated. But if you believe you know the right answer there, it's either because you think very, very small benefits outweigh the risk of chemotherapy or you have miscalculated because, in my opinion, we're very much in equal poise in that middle group. And so I'm very encouraged about that study. There are now 1,100 women have been entered. I think something like 600, I believe, have been randomly assigned now in the intermediate group. So it's moving along well. Joe Perano's done a great job chairing it. It's open in every cooperative group in North America, and I'm very supportive of that study. How do you find patients who do have intermediate scores responding to the idea of being randomized to receive chemo or not? Well, you've been around a long time, too. A randomized trial is always tough, especially when the two arms are very different. Again, I think we all have to take our hats off to Bernie Fisher and Michael Baum and Alberto Veronese, who did the randomized trials of mastectomy versus breast preservation. I mean, unbelievable courage to get those done and to express to our patients our own ambivalence and equipoise. You know, when I'm meeting with patients, I tell them I don't know what to do, and they always say, well, what if I was your wife or your sister? In fact, I encourage patients to ask me that. And in this case, I say, I still don't know what to do. I wouldn't know what to do if it was me. I'd know for sure I'd want hormone therapy, but I do not know what to do about chemotherapy in that group because our calculated benefit is right on the cusp of being just about the same as the potential risk. And so, in my opinion, that's a perfect place for a randomized trial. I have some women who don't agree with that and know exactly what they want, and I'd say, that's fine. Don't go in a randomized trial if you know what you want, whether it's chemo or no chemo. But I think for most of my patients, I've expressed ambivalence, and they've agreed with it. Not everybody's gone on the study, but we're doing okay. So you want to talk about HER2 positive now? Yeah, so then the node-negative ER positive, HER2 positives, and this goes back to the ASCO-CAP initiative, and that is what do we call HER2 positive? So those patients who are really HER2 positive, they're 3 plus or their FISH is over 2.2, those patients are really HER2 positive. None of us knows what to do in regards to that patient. If you do the numbers and calculate it out, if trastuzumab really decreases the odds of recurrence by 50%, you could argue just to go with hormone therapy and trastuzumab alone, but there are no randomized trials to document that that's the right thing. 
the question is whether trastuzumab works principally by itself or principally by initiating synergy with the chemotherapy you give it with, like a taxane. And I just don't know the answer to that. I will tell you that there are no protocols right now for these patients in terms of asking that question. And I have given a couple of patients hormone therapy and trastuzumab alone in that setting. What about the Oncotype DX assay in patients who have her two positive tumors? In Taylor Rx, for example, the people who wrote that trial, and I was involved, but it wasn't me, felt that if you're truly HER2 positive, and by that I mean, again, 3 plus or FISH over 2.2, those patients aren't eligible to be in Taylor Rx because it's so likely they'll have a high recurrence score. It's not absolute, by the way, but it's pretty likely, and they were trying to save resources. For practical purposes, let's say you see a second opinion, and the patient absolutely for sure has a HER2 positive tumor and absolutely for sure has a low recurrence score if that actually happens. I've heard there are cases like that. What would so you I do? haven't seen that case yet, and I don't know what I'd recommend. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably recommend hormone therapy and trastuzumab, but then you're exposing the patient to a 5% risk of cardiac dysfunction and a 1% risk of true heart failure and an unknown risk of long-term complications from giving Herceptin for a year. Remember, we've only been doing this three or four or five years now, so the shoe might drop. That's one where you just have to individualize. I think the bigger issue are people who are, say, 1 plus or 2 plus or equivocal. And while we don't call those patients HER2 positive, that level of HER2 does drive Oncotype DX. And remember, Oncotype DX is most driven by ER, HER2, and proliferation. And so those are patients I really encourage to do Oncotype DX, the ones where you look under the veil of what the pathologist calls HER2, and you say, well, what was it really, not just positive or negative? And if they say it's 1 plus or 2 plus, those are patients I really think Oncotype DX is quite helpful. Quite helpful in terms of deciding whether maybe they really are HER2 positive? No, quite helpful in terms of developing a recurrence score that could guide you because I think many of those patients will end up being high recurrence score and you might not have calculated that out from management online. I see. And I would recommend chemotherapy for those patients. I think it's clearly helpful. One of the issues would be to start to drop the veil on Oncotype DX instead of giving us a single recurrence score, tell us how they got there and whether or not one could use Oncotype DX to determine both ER and HER2. They don't do that yet, and the question is whether or not there are data sets that we could use to help decide whether or not, for example, if your recurrence score was high and you had a very high HER2 by gene expression, that predicted you would benefit from trastuzumab or not. So as you can imagine, there's been some talk about applying Oncotype DX to the large randomized trials. To my knowledge, nobody's done that yet, but I think you'll see things like that. And if not Oncotype DX, other measures of gene expression. Remember, Oncotype DX is the first one in the United States that has gotten there commercially, but there are other ways to look at gene expression, or as I said earlier, to look at other gene abnormalities besides HER2. So... Can you kind of provide a capsule summary of where we are in terms of the data from the adjuvant trastuzumab trials? You were talking a little bit about cardiac issues. Can you kind of summarize where we are in terms of what we know about the impact of trastuzumab on recurrence and survival and also the downsides and about what we know about different chemotherapy regimens combined with trastuzumab? So in the adjuvant study, almost uniformly across the five randomized trials, The reduction in the odds of recurrence is about 50% showing up very early, and that seems to be maintained now. And the odds of mortality seem to be dropped by 20 to 30%. And again, that seems to be maintained. 
much of that will be difficult to follow because a lot of those patients who were on the non-treatment arm have been told that, and many of them have crossed over. It depends on the study. So it's going to be hard to really get a good handle on survival benefits in those trials because people have crossed over. Nonetheless, even early on, before the crossovers didn't occur, there was a survival benefit, and I think there's no question it's a very potent drug. Now, just to drill down a little bit more in terms of efficacy, among those trials, how many of those patients were node-negative? What do we know about trastuzumab and node-negative breast cancer? First of all, there's no biological reason to believe a node-negative patient is less likely to benefit than a node-positive patient. And in the subsets I've seen where they do forest plots, there is no difference between them in the few node-negative patients are in the study. So I personally, again, I will say, I don't think anatomic staging is that important. I think it's the biology. And if a patient, for example, has a ERPR negative, poorly differentiated tumor that happens to be node-negative but is HER2 positive, I think that patient ought to be treated with standard chemotherapy using doxorubicin and anthracycline and trastuzumab. And I guess where you hear a lot of controversy is in the smaller node-negative HER2-positive tumors, particularly if they're ER-positive, around a centimeter, 5 to 10 millimeters, under 5 millimeters. How do you feel about that? Yeah, so that's the one earlier where I said, you know, I've treated a few of those with hormone therapy only and trastuzumab. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but you at least avoid exposing those people to chemotherapy. You know, the flip side, I'll tell you, Neil, I also believe, and in fact, Lynn Henry and I have an editorial in JCO coming out very soon. And in fact, at the Syngallon meetings, this was a recurring theme, I think there is a large group of no-deposited patients for whom chemotherapy is both not needed and exposes them to toxicities. Kathy Albain's study is the best one that addressed that, the SWOG8814 study of postmenopausal node-positive, ER-positive patients where everybody got TAM and then two-thirds of them got CAF in one way or another. And that study suggested there was a benefit to CAF versus TAM, but it's not very big. And it, in my opinion, it's probably confined to a small group of women who, although they have ER-positive cancers, their cancers behave like they're ER-negative. Now, my understanding is that there's going to be a look at those patients in terms of oncotype. Is that the case? We are going to do that, yeah. When do you think the result? That should be fascinating because right now we don't know anything about oncotype and node-positive patients, correct? Yeah, we're doing that now, and we hope to have results in the near future. And if we do get the kind of results that you're implying should be quite exciting, and again, we're going to be excited if they really pan out the way we think they will, then I think it would be quite reasonable to take those patients for whom every guideline body in the world should get chemotherapy, you know, node-positive patients, and say, Mrs. Jones, biologically, I don't think you're going to behave like a node-positive patient. I think you would be just as well off with hormone therapy only. There's nothing magic about the size of a tumor or whether lymph nodes are positive that means chemotherapy will help people. And I think we can sort this out with the biology, and I think Oncotype DX is one of those ways to do that. You mentioned the cardiac issues using trastuzumab with chemotherapy. Can you summarize what the risk is right now, how much variation we see in terms of the type of chemotherapy, and what happens to women who do have problems? With trastuzumab? Right. Yeah. I think the studies have been remarkably consistent, and that is across the board for patients who previously received an anthracycline, there's about a 5% incidence of cardiac dysfunction that can be measured by some sort of external monitoring, whether it's a MUGA scan or an echocardiogram. I mean, every study has shown that. And that there's about a 1% incidence of symptomatic congestive heart failure. And that about 75% of all of those seem to be reversible, maybe higher than that, when you stop the drug. 
And that's been pretty consistent across the board. So I tell my patients there's a 5% risk of having some dysfunction that you probably won't even know about except I'll tell you when we look at the echoes, but a 1% incidence of actually being symptomatic. And you've heard Denny Slayman say this from the podium. The big fear is whether those patients who had the reduction in cardiac function and then it improved might in the long run be at higher risk for long-term cardiac problems. We just don't know that. I mean, it's speculation that maybe that you stop the drug, the cardiac dysfunction goes away, and they never have trouble again. I just don't know. Now, there are regimens that have been used, and one in particular that Dennis Lehman has yeah. presented, which have trastuzumab without an anthracycline. What about cardiac issues there? So in the BCIRG study, as you know, everybody got AC followed by docetaxel, plus or minus Herceptin, or a third arm of carboplatinum docetaxel with Herceptin. So there were three arms, two of which look very similar to the intergroup and NSABP studies, except they used docetaxel instead of paclitaxel. But the third arm, the carboplatinum docetaxel and trastuzumab, that was based on preclinical data from Dennis and Mark Pegram and other folks from UCLA, suggesting that there could be synergy between trastuzumab and those two drugs. It was also based on the very real concern about heart failure popping up either when you give the drug with an anthracycline or you give it after. Now, those data have bounced around a bit. When Dennis first presented them, although all three arms suggested that there was benefit from trastuzumab versus not no matter what, the suggestion was is that the benefit may have been less dramatic in the carboplatinum docetaxel arm than in the other two. When he represented those data at San Antonio a year ago, those differences seemed to have disappeared. One of my concerns always about any new therapy is making decisions from a 15-minute abstract-only presentation and trying to sort out what's right or wrong. It's always nice to see peer-reviewed, full-length manuscripts where we can really delve into this and sort it out. My second concern, of course, for any clinical trial is when the data are released. Are they released when the data are sufficiently mature that they're not going to change much or not? I mean, I think it's of concern that the first time Dennis presented that and the second time he presented those data, the data changed within 12 months, suggesting that there were still a lot of people being followed up and events being recorded and things like that. This is not a criticism of Dennis. The enthusiasm over hearing about all those studies was high then and continues to be, and I think he should have reported it. But I think those of us who are clinicians need to discipline ourselves to hear exciting new results, but take them cautiously and with a grain of salt and make sure we don't apply things too early. Let's talk a little bit about endocrine therapy in this situation of node-negative ER positive, but endocrine therapy in general. And it's interesting, in the last five or six years, we've really seen a major shift in terms of how people approach that issue. Where are we right now in terms of adjuvant endocrine therapy in the postmenopausal patient? I think we're in confusion, although I may be in a minority about that. The one thing I would point out is that tamoxifen is a great drug. We have 30 to 40 years of follow-up with tamoxifen versus placebo. I don't think we're going to hear anything more bad about tamoxifen in terms of side effects, and it is a quite effective drug. Second of all is that the aromatase inhibitors in every trial so far are more effective than tamoxifen, but only slightly so. And I believe a lot of the wholesale adoption of uh, aromatase inhibitors has been as much marketing as science. I'm not opposed to using aromatase inhibitors, and I use them every day in my clinic, but I think we need to continue to be careful and thoughtful about these two classes of drugs and how to use them and when. We're still waiting for more data, for example, of the big 98, the last two arms of that, letrozole or letrozole followed by tamoxifen. 
Those results haven't been released yet, and I think they'll be telling. The other thing, Neil, I think if you look at those big trials, there are reasons to believe that the results could have been even different knowing more about what we know now. And you and I have talked about the CYP2D6 story, but if I can just briefly digress, everybody has known for years that tamoxifen's a prodrug, and everyone felt that the 4-hydroxytamoxifen was the most active metabolite. And there's another active metabolite, which is 4-hydroxy-endosmethyl, which we called endoxifen. What our group showed was that endoxifen gets there by an enzymatic action from a gene called CYP2D6. People who are wild type for CYP2D6 are rapid metabolizers, make lots of endoxifen. People who are either homozygous for SNPs in 2D6 don't metabolize tamoxifen to endoxifen, or if they're taking drugs that inhibit 2D6, they don't. The folks at the Mayo Clinic, Matt Getz and his group, took this information and applied it to an old study that Jim Engel had done many years ago of tamoxifen in the adjuvant setting and suggested what is quite consistent with our theory that People who are homozygous for the star 4, star 4 alleles did worse on tamoxifen than those who were wild type. Those data need to be confirmed, but if they're true, and if you figure that 10% of the European population and American population is star 4, star 4, and if you took those patients out of the TAM versus AI and put those patients in the AI arms, I think you'd see an even greater benefit. You'd see the tamoxifen group doing actually better because you take people who weren't benefiting from it out, and if you put them in the AI arm, I think they would do better with AI. So it would change the results of that study, and you can model, but it's hard to know exactly how you change it. What fraction of patients fit into that category? About 7 to 10% of the European and European descent population. We're not sure about African Americans or Asians. It looks a little different, but... I can't let you go making that statement about marketing versus science without querying you a little bit about that. We've seen, obviously, of course, a steady increase in the fraction of docs who generally start postmenopausal women with ER-positive tumor on an aromatase inhibitor. I'd like to know kind of what you do, and are we acting on marketing or are we acting on science in doing that? I think both. I don't want to get too snotty. I mean, clearly, several trials now suggest that there is a small but statistically significant reduction in the odds of recurrence if you use an AI at some point in your life. And the American Society of Clinical Oncology statement led by Eric Weiner said something like all ER-positive women should consider an aromatase inhibitor at some point during their treatment course. The question is when and where, and the second question is at what cost. And you know, the one thing I do disagree with is the statement that the AIs are safer and better tolerated than tamoxifen. I believe they are probably equal in terms of tolerance, but have different issues. So, for example, tamoxifen doesn't cause osteoporosis. The AIs do. You can make the comment, well, but you can treat osteoporosis with bisphosphonates. But, of course, bisphosphonates have their own problems. They're expensive. And in addition, now the osteonecrosis of the jaw issue. And so I think there are concerns like that that begin to balance them out. And I have to tell you, Neil, the thing that I found in my practice, which doesn't seem to be reflected as much in the clinical trials, is this musculoskeletal difficulties. And we have a study going now, a prospective study, comparing two of the AIs looking at pharmacogenomics. We're very interested in whether or not we can get to the pharmacogenomics of the aromatase inhibitors the way we have tried to get to tamoxifen I talked about earlier. And we have found a large fraction of women just coming off, just not able to tolerate it. And I wonder in the big clinical trials whether a lot of women on the trials quit taking the drug. We've always known that compliance with any oral drug is not what doctors think it is. 
And in our own study, I think they're telling us because we're interacting with them so much, and so they're willing to tell us. But you know, there are well-published studies that say that patients are non-compliant and don't tell their doctor because of the authority figure sort of issues. So again, this goes back to whether or not those big trials could have been even different had we known about compliance and that sort of thing. And I think we're going to be able to, so I'm not looking to the future a little bit, sort out both on the biology of the cancer, which of these two approaches might be a preferable one in regards to outcomes, but also inherited issues related to toxicities. And I think not only CIRMS, not only tamoxifen versus an aromatase inhibitor, but remember the aromatase inhibitors are also not born equal. And two of them are triazoles and one of them is a steroid. And while they all bind to the aromatase, they bind in different places and each of us metabolizes these differently. And so we're hoping in the future we can say, you know, if you're going to take an aromatase inhibitor, Mrs. Smith should take a triazole and not a steroid. Mrs. Jones should take a steroid, not a triazole. That their odds of having these complications are the same, but they're different in specific patients. I want to ask you one more thing about ER-positive tumors, because this to me has been fascinating to watch as it's evolved over the last three or four years. You were talking about the biology and the implications, et cetera, and that is the issue of delayed relapse and the impact of hormonal therapy, specifically aromatase inhibitors, down the line 5, 10, 15 years later. To me, this has been a revolution in how we're looking at this disease. Can you kind of summarize where we are in that regard? We've known since beats in or before that breast cancer can come back anytime. Certainly the so-called magic five years is not magic. And now with follow-up of all the adjuvant trials, there's pretty good evidence that tamoxifen does indeed permanently cure some patients who weren't going to be cured, but in others it may just decrease the odds of recurrence while you're taking it. And then later we see perhaps not a resurgence, but more recurrences, perhaps the recurrences that were going to occur early get pushed out a bit. And that leads to then, you know, what can you do? More tamoxifen. There are two prospective randomized trials that are old that suggest, if anything, women have a higher risk of recurrence, although not statistically significantly so. And there's some biology behind that. Perhaps cancer cells start seeing tamoxifen like an estrogen instead of an anti-estrogen, just like bone does. But the other then would be that would be a place to switch. And again, the problem... I've got there is that women who get to five years on tamoxifen without a recurrence have a pretty good prognosis to begin with, so we've got to be careful. But Paul Goss's data from the NCIC MA17, I think very strongly suggests that for those women who have a high risk of subsequent recurrence, switching over to an AI will reduce that by another 30 to 50 percent. And when you say a high risk recurrence... Yeah, so what's the challenge here? The challenge is to figure out who those women are. Right now, the only things we have available to do so are what they had originally. So big tumor, positive nodes, the usual anatomic issues of prognosis at the start. And now I'm going to look to the future again, but you always seem to like me to do. But I believe we can probably identify people after five years of tamoxifen who have residual risk of recurrence and perhaps focus our treatments on those patients. Technologies to look at, for example, minimal detectable disease in either bone marrow or even circulation or perhaps proteomics. This is all pie-in-the-sky stuff. But, for example, the Norwegians have shown that three to four years out after original diagnosis, they can identify patients who still have positive bone marrows and that those patients have a slightly worse prognosis than those who are negative at three to four years and that's true for women who are on hormone therapy. And so the question is, can we take advantage of that information and design trials that tell us that they're the ones we should focus our therapy on or not? I think that bone marrow 
alone is not going to be sufficiently accurate to help us find the ones who are going to recur and leave everybody else alone. But I think there are things like that where we can go forward and really identify the people who get out to five years whose prognosis is so good that nothing else can help them and those who have sufficiently high risk of recurrence and are still hormone dependent that switching to an aromatase inhibitor makes perfect sense. My approach is that if you were node positive originally and you've gotten to five years and you're free of disease on TAM and you don't have osteoporosis, to me that's an easy decision. You should switch. If you were node negative, and let's throw in well-differentiated too, and you have evidence of osteopenia or osteoporosis, I don't necessarily strongly urge those patients to switch over. I talk to them and tell them about the data, but I say, you know, I think stopping tamoxifen alone is not all bad. If you're in between, which is, by the way, what the majority of patients are, I talk to each patient, and I'm getting increasingly liberal in recommending they switch over because, you know, we're getting more and more data to back that up. But there are still concerns there, I think. The other factor that has to be brought in, too, is the time since diagnosis, because you may see the woman three years after she's had some oxygen, or maybe she's never had hormonal therapy. How do you factor that in, the decision? Yeah, there's nothing magic about five years, and we have randomized trials of two to three years and switching over, randomized trials of five years and switching over, and... I usually, if I have a patient who I started on tamoxifen, it made sense at the start and is doing well and had an otherwise pretty favorable prognosis, I'll usually keep her on TAM till five years. If I had a patient who I started on tamoxifen, but in looking back, I say, geez, maybe your prognosis was a little worse at the start, maybe you had a positive note or something, then I would urge her to switch over earlier at three to five years. There's nothing hard and fast on this, and I don't know the right answer.